Let's go inside the vault, the design vault. The Fulton Market area, I think, is the place where some of the best brick architecture in Chicago is currently happening because it's a place where you have a lot of these historical buildings and you have a lot of people coming in there, building offices, residences, restaurants, and they want to make it feel like it's part of that history. And so they're using brick. And then you have a lot of architects who are really pushing the limits on what they're able to decoratively do with the brick. This is my guest, Will Kwan. I'll share more about him shortly. In this bonus episode from the Design Vault, we talk to Will, an architecture photographer, writer, researcher, and man who is fascinated with brick. Hi, I'm Doug Pat, and this is Design Vault. Will Quam lives in Chicago. He's currently writing a book for the University of Chicago Press on the history of brick architecture in the city. He documents brick as a way to pay more attention to the world around him and encourages others to do the same. He believes it's been like learning a whole new language and a means to discovering great texts hidden in the buildings that surround him. In his own words, everything built is designed and has impact, good or bad. It's easy to walk by something like a brick building and pay it no mind, but the world is so much more interesting when you ask the question, what is that and why is it the way it is? Above all, he believes nothing is boring. And everything can be interesting and exciting, even bricks. So welcome, Will. It's nice to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Doug. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you became so interested in brick and brick architecture. I became interested in bricks through a very circuitous route. I am from St. Paul, Minnesota originally, which is a good brick town, but a smaller brick town. I studied theater. I directed, I did set design, and I acted. And I moved to Chicago originally to be a theater teacher. And that's what I did for about nine years. I taught middle school theater. I taught after school programs, in school residences. I wrote and directed plays with middle schoolers. The great thing about that work, besides just, you know, it was so fulfilling working with kids, is my work brought me all over the city and the suburbs of Chicago. And Chicago is massive. The south side of Chicago alone is the size of Philadelphia. And so coming from a place like St. Paul, it was an introduction to a much larger built world. And so through my work, I was you know on the north side in the morning, the south side in the afternoon, the west side in the evening, the suburbs the next day. And going around Chicago, you start to see that there are these very repetitive building types, the bungalow, the two flat, the courtyard style, the apartment hotel, and they're all made of brick pretty much exclusively. You get some stone, you get the very occasional wood. But brick is the defining material. And I started to notice that it was the brick and specifically the face brick, the brick on the front of these buildings that made them all unique. And they weren't just these red rectangles that I'd always thought of a brick as being. There's texture, there's color, there's pattern, there's usage. And so I started taking pictures on my phone. And then one day in the basement of a theater where I was running a middle school theater camp, I started an Instagram and posting them and people started asking me questions. And so I said, well, I better research this. Dove down the rabbit hole, and then seven years later, here I am. It's become my full-time job, taking pictures for architects and suppliers and engineers. And, and then I lead these brick tours, which is such a natural spinoff of my earlier work, taking that excitement and giving it away. I think that's the biggest thing about my work is I'm not trying to gatekeep anything. I don't have a background in this. I'm just a very passionate learner. And then my goal is just to give everything away in the most interesting and exciting way possible. Do you ever think to yourself, I should have been an architect? 
I'm very lucky in that my great-grandfather was an architecture journalist and instilled a lot of that in my dad. My great-grandfather is the great John Intenza, who did the case study houses. I never met him, but my dad knew him well. So we grew up going on a lot of architecture tours, a lot of historic home tours. And really, the importance of the built world was instilled to me as a young man. But it was always something I thought you know I would just enjoy. And maybe that is I'm very lucky that I grew up playing trombone and singing in choirs, and I went to space camp. And I had was encouraged to have all these very multifaceted interests by parents who had these very multifaceted interests as well. And so I was very lucky to be able to feel like I could explore things. It sounds really cool. I mean, it's almost like you're walking down the street and you see a building and it's made out of brick. And it occurs to you, you get this thought like, hey, that's kind of cool. I wonder why that looks like that. And then the next day it gets a little more important. The next day it gets a little bit more fascinating. And all of a sudden, you've got this interest in something that sits so far outside of your wheelhouse in a way. It's amazing. Exactly. You know, it starts with somebody asking, what's that pattern in me? Well, I guess I'll look on Wikipedia. And then I'm emailing a brick dealer. And then I'm finding books on the history of brick architecture to the point where now last week, I spent a whole day at the University of Illinois Library reading through old copies of the brick and clay record from the 1970s. And what makes it so great in Chicago too, is you truly can walk down any street and you'll find great brick architecture, any residential street anywhere in this entire city. And the city is so big and changing so much so constantly that you can go down in the same street again 10 years later and you're going to have so many new things to discover. Yeah. As an aside, have you been to the Monadnock building? Love the Monadnock building. Right. When I was in architecture school and I learned about that building and the fact that the base is six feet thick of brick masonry as the load-bearing structure... The first thing I did when I got to Chicago was go to that building. I, mean, I just couldn't believe it, right? It's amazing. It's an unbelievable... It's one I found has such lasting power as well as I interview architects. So many times I'll ask them, what's your favorite brick building in the city? And I'd say 50% say the Monadnock building. It's so honest with its material and so inventive at the same time. You know, One of the things as I've looked at it and photographed it, I've noticed is there's no hard lines on the building. It's all using this molded brick made by the Chicago Anderson Brick Company. You get the sort of the plinth that rises up and then curves into the building. And that it's not a sharp edge from a brick to another brick that's turning. It's a rounded brick to bridge that gap at every point. So the lines are kept incredibly smooth throughout the whole thing through this really intentional use. Yeah. Now, how about the cornice? Oh, tremendous. Every piece of that was intentionally planned that way. There's nothing was done on accident. And that's still true today. You know, one of the things I, I try to push back on a lot is, you know, in my work, I'm, I'm a lot of times focusing and studying and photographing historic buildings. And they're amazing. But people sort of feel this permission to say, oh, well, we just don't make them like we used to. And there's only crap being made today. And it's just not true. There's a lot of really amazing buildings being built today. The way we make them is different. The style we make them in is different. But that's because so much has changed in the materials we use, making things efficient, making labor safe. And there's a lot of really great design out there that if we just say we don't make them like we used to, we neglect the work that architects and designers are still doing today with the same intentionality they were doing in the 1890s when the Monadnock was built. Well, it's a great segue. So we're going to talk about a few pieces of architecture today, two Chicago pieces and one New York City, and then maybe some other buildings. So let's dig in here and learn a little bit more about brick architecture. First, let's talk about the Chicago Park District HQ building by John Ronan Architects in Chicago. 
The Chicago Park District headquarters is a 78,000-square-foot building comprised of headquarters office space for the Chicago Park District staff and field house on a 17-acre park. The headquarters building is a two-story circle in plan with two courtyards. The building has a unique facade with individually curved metal panels, curtain wall glazing, and a light brown brick facade with brick patterning. An interesting fact that Will points out about the building and in regard to the brick masonry is that the bricks used are all Chicago common bricks, which were made locally. So, Will, let's start out with that. Tell us a little bit more about the bricks of this building. Yeah, they're made of Chicago common bricks, which were the bricks made locally in Chicago. And most cities in the 1800s and for part of the 1900s were producing their own brick, both common brick and face brick. Face brick being the nicer, more intentionally made brick used on the fronts of buildings, and common brick, the cheaper stuff to go in the guts. What made Chicago unique is that we only made common brick. Our clay, which we had in massive abundance thanks to this glacial lake that used to cover all of this dry land in Chicago. Lake Michigan used to extend far over what's now dry land. The still waters of that lake allowed all this clay to settle, but all this other stuff settled in that clay as well. The perfect mix for making bricks, but it made bricks that were, frankly, to those architects of that era, very ugly. They weren't predictable in any way. The levels of mineral in them were really variable. One batch might come out yellow, one brown, one pink, one red, all these chunks of limestone in them. But the clay was right there and it was super cheap to make. And so we made a ton of them and threw it in our buildings. But then we would import other bricks, nicer bricks from St. Louis or Milwaukee or Pennsylvania or Texas to put on the fronts of buildings. But Chicago kept making these common bricks. And we made a massive amount of them. In 1871, the year of the Great Fire of Chicago, Chicago produced about 100 million of them a year. And part of what makes the timing of the fire so good, a little ironically, is that the year of the fire, 1871, the Chicago brick industry had really finished mechanizing pretty much by that year. And so when the city burned down, the city was in the brickmakers of Chicago were in a unique position to help rebuild the city out of brick. So that fire code, a new fire code could be met in a way that other cities like Boston, Boston's burned down several times because they kept having to rebuild out of wood. Chicago had this local brick making machinery to make it possible to rebuild with brick. So the year the fire reproduced about 100 million of them a year. 10 years later, Chicago was producing 200 million of these a year. And by 1916, Chicago was producing just shy of 1 billion common bricks a year. And that's the year Chicago actually surpassed the Hudson Valley of upstate New York, which provided all the common brick for New York City. By 1916, Chicago was producing more common bricks than the entire common brick area of New York City. About 11% of all the brick made in the United States in 1916, face brick or common brick, was Chicago common brick. And it's more by about 100 million than all the brick made in Missouri, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Indiana combined that year. So we made a ton of brick in these surface plants all over the city, and we kept it all locally for the most part. And so you go around Chicago into alleys and the sides of buildings, and this is the brick that you see, this messy looking brick. And it was always covered up because it was considered too unpredictable, too ugly. But what happened was starting in the 1960s, as we're entering this era of bright glazed bricks or these sort of sleek, smooth, sort of mesey and modern bricks, you get a generation of architects who start to be really drawn to the antique accidental look of these bricks, the variation on them. This is a time as urban renewal is sort of ravaging Chicago and all these buildings are being torn down all over the place. And people start to save these common bricks 
and put them in new buildings because they can add this sense of antiqueness and age to buildings in a way that a modern brick can't. And this new market of reclaimed brick is born. And then by the 1982, when the last Chicago common brick manufacturer shuts down, there's suddenly this massive market for these reclaimed bricks. First, for an antique look to a building in the 70s and 80s, as people are really drawn to these earth tones, browns, and rough, sort of creamy whites of brick. But then today, especially, and in the case especially of this new Chicago Park District headquarters, these bricks, they've embodied carbon in them. And so they get you a lot of lead points, and they're a much more eco-friendly material to use. And so you start to see a lot more use of this reclaimed material because of the way it ties into a greater focus on ecological buildings. And it's perfect for this building. It's a gorgeous building sitting on this massive park and having this really earthy brick that's full of color variation, full of all these stones, full of all this stuff. It makes it feel like it really is growing out of the park and a part of the park rather than a lot of park buildings that feel like they're sort of placed down into the park. So I'm curious, just to back up, why did Chicago stop producing common brick? Was it because brick masonry was no longer load-bearing? We were using steel and iron? Yeah. So Chicago and the country stopped using common brick mostly after the Second World War when cavity wall construction became prominent. Concrete block is just a lot larger and a lot cheaper. In 1952 in Chicago, a 77-square-foot wall of Chicago commons would cost about $120 to lay parts and labor. The same size wall out of concrete block was about $45. And so the cost savings were huge. As labor then became more and more expensive and concrete became more and more affordable, people started moving away from the common brick. Then what happened is in 1970, Congress passes the Clean Air Act, forms the EPA, and brick plants all over the country were putting tons of sulfur dioxide and ozone and smog into the air. And for a lot of those companies, it was not too difficult to get into compliance. You know, you have a big beehive kiln or a tunnel kiln, and you could put a scrubber on your vents and start to clean up your operation. These common brick manufacturers, by that point, there were just two left in the Chicago area. They were using what are called scove kilns, which basically you take a bunch of unfired bricks, make them into this massive pile with channels running through it. You cover it in fired bricks and set it on fire from the inside. It's a super cheap way to make bricks that don't need to look nice, but are effective. But the comparison I like to make is a traditional kiln works like an oven. You take your turkey, you put it in the oven, you close the door, you turn it on. A scove kiln that the Chicago Commons are made in, you take that same turkey, you put it on your countertop, you stick a gas jet in the butt, you cover it in deli meat and light it on fire. <laughs> it's a lot more messy. It does the same job, but it's a lot more messy and it's a lot harder to clean up. And so these Chicago Common plants looked at the economics. They were losing market share. They looked at the clay they had left. The Illinois Brick Company in Blue Island decided we've only got about three years of clay left. We'll just shut down. And then they looked at the environmental impact. One of these companies in Muncie, Indiana, on days that they were burning, there are certain intersections you just couldn't drive because they were so smog-filled. To the credit of the American Brick Company, who was in that last company, they spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars trying to find ways to come into compliance and to make it a cleaner operation and continue this business. But it ultimately just wasn't economically viable. So back to the Chicago Park District headquarters building, did you ever read anything about why John Ronan Architects ultimately used common brick for the exterior veneer? Yeah. So a friend of mine supplied those reclaimed bricks for him. A big part of it was that environmental impact, using that embodied carbon, using a local 
material, not needing to create any new emissions through the creation of material. And also the fact that it's a reclaimed material taken from demolished buildings nearby. It's taking that local material and using it for a local purpose, making it something more true to that place than a different kind of imported brick. And John Ronan is an architect who really loves brick and has used brick in really creative ways in Chicago. He did a, a high school, South Shore International Academy, where he was very specific about these different colors, or slightly different tones of brick, sort of a creamy white and a little bit more of a beige, and figuring out exactly where he wanted these bands to go on the building. He did a house on the north side that uses these super long format bricks in a really interesting way to enliven up this very geometric or rectilinear facade. So he's someone who's super intentional about brick. And so the Park District headquarters is another example of him using brick in that really intentional way. Yeah, the building's really unique. And it sounds like a very thoughtful office. So next, let's talk about McDonald's HQ in Chicago. The architect of record was Gensler. When I sat down to do a little bit of research online, I really couldn't find a whole lot of pictures which describe this building. There are many exterior pics that are kind of further away shots. The interior photos that I did find on a variety of websites are really quite stunning with wood-clad interiors, gracious curves, and a very contemporary feel. The exterior is also quite interesting. The building almost seems inverted with a steel and glass base and square glass curtain wall openings framed in brick above. So these brick frames are really actually quite beautiful. And you sent me a couple of photos of these. Let's talk about those. Yeah. So it's a big steel and glass building, but it does have these large brick frames that surround two stories of windows each. And it's all precast thin brick made by a company in Germany. And to get sort of to the importance of what that brick is on the building and why it's there, I think it's important to talk about the neighborhood it's in. It's in an area called Fulton Market part of the West Loop of Chicago, which a lot of people have probably heard of as sort of Chicago's new restaurant and tech hub. It was an area of meatpacking and warehouses and manufacturing for many, many years. In the last 15 years, it's become this massive area for some of the best restaurants in the city. Google has a building there now. And so it's full of all these big brick buildings, these big old brick warehouses or storage buildings with large windows. And so I think it's so wonderful that this new steel and glass building made the intentional choice to embrace that brick material. But the other thing I love about it is that we talked about with Chicago Common Brick, brick is no longer really being used as a structural material in the United States. And so buildings like this that take that nature, that brick is no longer a structural material, they take it and use it instead as a purely decorative material. And I think they do such a wonderful job on this building because this the thin brick that runs around these windows, sort of bluish and golden and orange colors with a rolled edge and a little bit of sort of a knock or sort of bumps and stuff on the face of it. It describes this herringbone and zigzag pattern through these spandrels and these mullions that run along the building in a way that serves no structural purpose at all, but it is beautiful to look at. And tie and through the use of that brick, it ties it into the neighborhood. I think that's just such a wonderful thing to do at a time when a lot of new construction, and here I've said earlier, there is a lot of great new construction, but there is a lot of construction that's using brick in really uninspired ways. It's just slapping a bunch of stretchers up on a wall or between windows. And so to see a building like this, a really prominent building in a really prominent location, in a historic location, I love that they're using brick in such an interesting way. 
Yeah, I'd love to see the studies in the architect's office for all of these or for the variety of brick patterns, right? You've got soldier coursing, you've got stacked herringbone, as you stated. You almost have something that looks close to a Greek key as well. It's really quite beautiful, and the color is stunning in the sun. It really is. I captured it in those photos I sent you. It faces the north side of the street, and so you get this beautiful raking light on it in the summer evenings. And in the shadow, it's still got this sort of lovely warm orange to it. So it really is very present, and there's so much going on. It's the sort of thing where you look at it, and you trace it along, and you just start to, like you said, start to find all those little details, different details scattered throughout the brickwork. Yeah, and what's really nice, too, it's almost as though they're expressing the structural system on the exterior with these super tall piers, which frame these windows, one starts to think, okay, well, maybe the structural steel system is hidden within that. I don't know whether or not that's actually the case, but it does remind one of an industrial building in Chicago 80 or 90 years ago, right? Yeah. And those are the buildings that surround it there. And another little twist I like that they do is that those brick frames are not surrounding every single window or they don't run on every single story, that you do get these big frames that surround two or three stories, I can't quite remember. And so it still gives it this very light feeling, this very open feeling, while having that strong brick tie-in to the neighborhood. And the Fulton Market area, I think, is the place where some of the best brick architecture in Chicago is currently happening. Because it's a place where you have a lot of these historical buildings, and you have a lot of people coming in there, building offices, residences, restaurants, and they want to make it feel like it's part of that history. And so they're using brick. And then you have a lot of architects who are really pushing the limits on what they're able to decoratively do with the brick. And McDonald's was a pretty fairly early example of that, but there are many more that have come in since there in the area. That's an interesting point. So early McDonald's structures across the United States, do you know if they utilized brick pretty heavily? You know, I've researched this. I have emailed with a fast food historian to find some answers. So yeah, the early McDonald's drive-ins were clad in ceramic tile, white, bright white, bright red. And then they made a very intentional choice in 1975 or so. They did a big redesign, sort of as the baby boomers who were driving there are now buying homes. And what they did was they started putting these dark brown bricks. They redesigned their restaurants using this very dark, earthy brick and adding that classic McDonald's double mansard roof. And this is the era too when like Wendy's adds the solariums. The restaurants become these very earthy buildings. And the first one of those was in Matheson, Illinois, in the south suburbs. And that was a time too where McDonald's actually built their first corporate headquarters in Oak Brook, Illinois, designed by Dirk Lohan, Mies van der Rohe's grandson. Like those restaurants is a building very much, it's covered in this wonderful sort of earthy iron spotted brick and surrounded by man-made lake and all these trees and very much engaging with nature at a time when they're trying to push away from that kind of bright colors, machine age looking stuff into a more earthy thing. And then you get into the 1990s and McDonald's does another major rebrand adding these sort of pastel colors or a lot of painted white brick that I think a lot of people my generation are familiar with as well. And then now a lot of those McDonald's, they've torn them down and they've rebuilt them using smooth grays and blacks and whites. And so McDonald's, you can really follow, you know, one of my big passions is following how people have used brick throughout every decade of history that you can look at a building. And based on the color, the texture, the use of the brick, tell when it was built. 
And McDonald's in specific is a great way to do that. You can look at their restaurants and see how they've changed the restaurants. And that gives you sort of a bellwether of how ideas about what purpose brick should serve has changed. That's a very long answer to say, yes, McDonald's has used a lot of brick in their restaurants throughout the country. The building is really interesting because it's also kind of flipped, right? I mean, so the base should be masonry and the upper portion should all be glass and windows. I hadn't really noticed that until you brought that up. It is pretty unusual in that way. It's about a two-story big steel and glass expressed base story within the brick rising up above. And I don't know why that choice was made, but it is pretty striking. And it creates maybe a much open feeling base story. And in the base story, they have a restaurant where you can order you know, the, all the traditional McDonald's things, but you can also, they have a rotating list of items that you can get at McDonald's around the country. So you can get sometimes like a curry burger or something like that, that they'd have in McDonald's India, or I guess it wouldn't be a burger, curry chicken sandwich. The McRib, maybe. Yeah, the McRib all year long. Who knows? <laughs> we, we can dream. <laughs> we can only dream. Oh, that's great. The final building that I'd love to talk about is the Grand Mulberry in New York City by Morris Hedgeme Architects. I got to meet Morris Hedgeme in the city. We talked a little bit about the Grand Mulberry that evening. The building is absolutely stunning. It's incredibly creative. This is paraphrased from their website. So traditionally, Italianate tenement buildings featured a tripartite facade that consisted of a base, middle, and top with differing details and brickwork. The Grand Mulberry's facade consists of banding at the building's base, pediment windows at the middle, and arched windows and a cornice at the top with coin details defining the bays. While the facade pattern is traditional, the application of the hand-molded domed bricks is modern. The molded bricks representing an offset window pattern to the real ones. The red-orange color pays further homage to the red brick buildings found in the neighborhood. So this building is really unique, not only because of its aesthetics, but because they used some custom brick. Yeah, it's one of my favorite new brick buildings in the United States, and one that I had on my radar for a long time. And I took a trip to New York this summer specifically to go photograph several buildings, and it was one of the first ones I hit because it's just such a striking building, and I think a perfect use of brick as a modern material in a couple of ways. One is that color, that beautiful reddish orange color, and talking about you know, the history of what kind of bricks are people using in eras. In those Italianate tenement buildings, that was an era where they were using this very smooth pressed red brick. And that was sort of the predominant material. So first, that color pays homage. And two, like I mentioned before, embracing the brick as a decorative material in an age when it doesn't need to be structural anymore. It could have very easily just been a red brick punched opening building. But then using those specifically hand-molded bricks to create that design on the building is such a simple yet unbelievably inventive way to create design across the facade. It reminds me a lot of one of my favorite buildings here in Chicago. There's a church. Any Chicagoans, they know it. It's St. Stanislaus Koska. It's right next to the expressway. It's the big brick church right next to the expressway that you've probably driven by. It's built in 1881 for what came to be the largest Polish Catholic congregation in the country, maybe even the largest Catholic congregation in the country at the time. It's a huge church made entirely of Chicago common brick. So using the cheapest brick they had available. But what the architect, Brooklyn-based architect named John Keeley did, the front of the building, the main central window is very small and it's got wood tracery. But he took that common brick and by pushing it out and turning it, created this much larger arc 
that surrounds it with smaller round sort of bullseyes and these bands of dentaling and creates on the facade just through the movement of the brick, the illusion of a much grander central window, a much grander central design using that same material. And I'm seeing the Grand Mulberry, that's what immediately ties me back to. It's using that same material in just a slightly different way to create the appearance and the remembrance and the reminder of something different, all through the use of the same material, but just in a slightly different way. Yeah, the building essentially has two facades, right? It has a facade that's made out of brick, and then it has a facade or a facade that's articulated in brick, and then the real facade with glass and metal windows. It's a really creative piece of architecture. You know what I love? There are some really great shots of this building online from further away and up above, and the building matches all of the other architecture and yet is completely set apart. It's like this little wonderfully articulated orange-red cube, which sets itself apart and yet kind of fits in to everything around it. It's a really wonderful building. It absolutely is. And the other thing I want to praise about it is the use of those hand-molded bricks. It could have done any other sort of thing. It could have you know, done a projecting header or something to create that design. But again, in this era when brick can be sort of freed as a purely designed detail. And it is a ceramic material that is made of earth, sculpted by people, and fired in fire. We see more and more these days projects taking advantage of specifically that hand process. There's a couple projects here in Chicago, a couple of homes like in Lincoln Park that are using these sculpted, hand-sculpted bricks that brick companies have these artisans who will take that same material and apply this more sculptural treatment to it in all sorts of different ways and bring the handmade process back into the fold. You know, you don't have to get rid of your extruded, your modulars, but we now have the ability to use brick more decoratively. And let's bring a little bit of the handmade process back into it. And I think that's what is so great about this too. Also, one other thing is it could have been so easy for them to have those two facades line up the real and the false. And it's just so spectacular to me that there is that offset, that offset to them. Also that the building has, you know, it's this tripart, the tenements, but there's sort of the two pushed together. And then there's, it's almost as if another one kind of got built in later with a thick party wall. Again, it's not a perfect repetition of the same form over and over again. It looks more realistic to how the city would have organically been built. Will you talk just like an architect? <laughs> Listen, I'll take it. I'll take it. This is what you get if you don't have hobbies for many, many years. Oh, that's great. So I know you give tours. Do you do any teaching? Because you'd be an amazing teacher if you're not already. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I don't do any teaching. I have taught photo classes and I have given a lot of talks with groups on the history of brick architecture, both for you know architecture classes, but also for things like various interest groups. But then I, yeah, I give these tours. I started about five years ago, a friend of mine who runs a great tour company here in Chicago called Chicago for Chicagoans, basically slid in my DMs and was like, you got to do tours. You got to do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I will. It's been perfect. I love doing it. It takes advantage of that teaching background I have. And like I said, I'm a guy who I like to see things and I like to tell people about them. I never want to. And similar, you know, I do all this research for these tours using all these databases and newspaper archives and things. And whenever anybody asks me how I do my research, I just can't wait to tell them. I don't want to gatekeep anything. I want you to be able to do all this research and dive into your own things as well. And the great thing about the tours is, you know, when I first started them four years ago, 
they were very solely brick focused. You know, I'm teaching you about Rolock, Soldier, Shiner, and all these things. But now as they've grown to eight different neighborhoods around the city and hopefully 10 by next year, I treat brick as the beginning. If I can get you excited about a brick, I can get you to look closer at anything. You're going to look way too close at the brick, but you're also going to see the other ways in which the built environment or even the invisible environment change our city. And Chicago is this amazing city because it has so much history and so many generations of history. You know, with 77 official neighborhoods, all of those are broken up into sub-neighborhoods, and all of those have had several different generations of people and stories there. And so every single place you go, you can find all this depth to dive into. If I can give one of my favorite examples that ties to brick, when I tell people about Chicago Common Brick, you know, I talk about these clay pits that were all over the city. There's a big one on the north side here. There's three small clay pits, these three small companies. And by 1900, they had formed into one large company, mining one big pit. By 1915, they moved out to Blue Island in the south suburbs. The city bought that pit from them. The city filled it with garbage to get it back to ground level, paved it over. And in 1929, they built Lane Tech High School on top of it, which is one of the largest high schools in the country and one of the most prestigious high schools in Chicago. So this huge, beautiful, gothic revival high school built on this former clay pit that you wouldn't even know was there. And that's a wonderful example of all these things that are just hidden all over Chicago. And you really don't have to look too hard to find them. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you here today. You know as much more than any architect or architectural historian about the subject of brick. And you're incredibly intelligent and articulate. And what blows me away is that you do talk just like an architect. So it's been a real pleasure to have you here. Before you go, you're a guy with many varied interests. Do you have any advice for someone who's passionate about so many things or maybe just about one thing and doesn't really know where to start? I mean, I would say it can be hard. It can be difficult to start. But just the thing to do is start small and start somewhere. I'm someone who very much, once I find something I want to know about, I can get way in my own way of like, well, it's going to be too hard to learn everything, so it's not worth it. You start somewhere. You know, For me, it was Wikipedia. It truly was just Wikipedia. And I started getting answers to questions, and then I started getting more questions. And that let me keep asking more questions and keep getting more answers and keep getting more questions and more answers. So I think it's just choose to start in a way that is simple and accessible to you and to dive down as deep as you can. Yeah, I think what's challenging for most people is they overthink it and wonder where everything's going. And it would seem to me that your experience has been so organic that it's worked out for you in many ways that you never really anticipated. Exactly. And something that is also really important to me is saying when I don't know the answer to something. You know, if someone asks me a question I don't know, just saying I don't know. Because I think so often the instinct is to if you are want to be an expert in something, to try to pull things together to create an answer to something you don't necessarily know. But I think for my teaching days and working with kids and young people, it's so valuable not to do that, to be able to admit when you don't know the answer. And that often will lead people to their own curiosity and finding those answers for themselves. And then you can go off and do your research too. Well, it's been great to have you here. Thanks for your time. Could you tell us about your websites and how people can find you? Yeah. So my website is brickofchicago.com. That's brick singular of chicago.com. And that's where I have information about, you know, you can learn about brick bonds. You can learn about the history of Chicago Common Brick and my tours. And I make a calendar as well. I have a website, willquam.com. That's Q-U-A-M is how my last name is spelled. 
And that's for my architecture photography work. I take pictures for architects and engineers and landscape architects and all sorts of people and organizations around Chicago. So you can see my work there. And then I'm on Instagram, Brick of Chicago on Instagram, posting different bricks from around Chicago and then my travels every single day. Thanks, Will. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening. If you learned something today, share this episode with a friend and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. If you want to find out more about today's project, visit glengarry.com forward slash design dash vault. That's G-L-E-N-G-E-R-Y dot com forward slash design dash vault. Want even more inspiration? Take a look around glengarry.com while you're there. Glengarry is one of the nation's largest brick manufacturers and an industry leader for its diversified product line of more than 600 brick products. With inspiring photos, useful resources, easy search tools, helpful design studios, and more. I'm sure you'll find the inspiration you need to stretch your imagination.